Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast. I am Yvonne Hartley, co-administrator and forensic liaison manager of the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign. I am delighted to be joined today by leading criminal defence lawyer, Emily Bolton. Emily is a founder and director of Appeal, a charity set up to help miscarriage of justice cases in a legal capacity. Welcome, Emily, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Yvonne. It's great to be here. Excellent. One of the cases that you've been working on recently is that of Mr. Roger Kahn. Mr. Kahn was imprisoned along with a co-defendant for a term of 30 years in 2011 for a brutal attack on a restaurant owner, Mr. Nassim Ahmed. But can you give me some more information about um, Roger's case, Emily, and why it became a suspect? So uh, Roger and his co-defendant, Abel Ali, uh, were both arrested for the attack on Nassim Ahmed. And they were arrested because Roger had indeed travelled in Abel's vehicle um, to the area. Um, this was down in Devon in the West Country of England. Uh, and had, uh, there was, you know, there was evidence that Roger had done that. There were you know, fingerprints in the car, things like that. So, but Roger has made no um, bones about the fact that he travelled down there with, uh, with, with Abel, but his, yeah. his position is that he um, had nothing to do with the physical attack on the scene. So Roger's trial was um, very peculiar, to say the least, because he didn't actually get legal representation, did he? Yeah, so this is what um, first drew me to the case. Uh, Roger had been in contact with a journalist uh, who uh, brought the case to my attention. And what stood out at the very beginning, before you even get into the forensics and uh, the, the kind of details of the case, is that Roger represented himself on a charge of the seriousness of uh, attempted murder. And that was because uh, Roger was obviously, as everybody, got duty duty solicitor representation in the police station yeah told those uh, solicitors what had happened and asked them to investigate now when he told them what happened he said hey i you know i came down to newton abbott with abel my nephew yeah um, but I, but but i didn't participate in this attack and you'll be able to find me on cctv uh, around town you, know, you can th- this is this is where i was go get this evidence yes. and you that will that will exonerate me you know we won't even have a trial and roger became concerned these uh, lawyers weren't doing this work uh, weren't uh, ascertaining um his presence on the cctv and it was because of that that he then asked to have a different set of lawyers mm-hmm. the judge presiding over the proceeding said all right you can have a second you, you can you can have different lawyers the second set of lawyers continued, as far as Roger was not believe what he was saying and not to um, do the investigation that he was requested. And he asked for a third set of lawyers. And at this point, the judge drew the line, said, OK, it's these lawyers or no lawyers. You know, I'm not going to have this going on indefinitely. Now, the problem with this, I mean, you know, from one perspective, you can see exactly where Roger's coming from, right? He's asking for legal work to be done. He's That's asking it. for investigation work to be done. Yeah, and, it, and, and it's not happening. Uh, the great tragedy of the situation, the problem here is that the CCTV, as we all know, gets wiped after 30 days. So this early uh, failure, this earlier fa- failure by the legal team to um, 
do the investigation, gather the evidence, yeah. and that that evidence wasn't available for Roger's trial. So Roger ended up representing himself because he felt that he was given the choice between lawyers he didn't trust uh, and going it alone. And Man. Roger's a survivor, that's the sort of person he is. Uh, and so he, he took it upon himself to represent himself. Wow, that's an incredible task to undertake. And quite appalling that the, uh, the, the legal representation didn't seek this evidence when it was clearly well, his identity. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, because I'm actually um, trained as a lawyer uh, in the United States, that's where I used to work in Louisiana at an innocence project. In the US, public defenders, people who are assigned to represent people who can't afford a lawyer, work with investigators all the time. There's a defense investigator who goes out at the time of the original trial and does that investigation work on behalf of the defendant, so on behalf of, of, of Mr. Khan in this instance. Yes. That is culturally very much how it works in the States, um, in, the, in the good public defender offices. It doesn't seem to work that way here. Uh, I don't think no. criminal defence solicitors at trial consider that to be part of their role. If they do get an investigative lead from their client, they tend to pass it on to the police to look, to look into. And that, I think, in an adversarial system is really problematic because, you know, the police have a job to do uh, and they get tunnel vision fairly early on. I don't know how you expect yeah. them to do anything else. You're asking them to bring an individual to trial. So, of course, that's what they going to do uh and uh and that and that and that leaves you with situations like rogers where evidence that Roger says would have absolutely confirmed his alibi uh wasn't gathered and and and, and that's why he's you know he he ended up getting convicted like you say emily you've worked in, in america on many cases and there are such clear-cut differences aren't there between the british judicial system and the american one and to the fact that the American one does seem vastly more supportive of the accused than the English system because the American accused can get their documentation. I mean, that, that's exactly it. There are four ways in which wrongfully convicted people are being exonerated in the US. And why we know about all those wrongfully convicted people in the US is because those four means of being exonerated are available and those are first of all they they're exposing errors in the trial they're exposing errors in the police investigation they're exposing errors by the defense lawyers and they're exposing errors by the jury now those four types of error in this country are concealed and they're concealed in the following way first of all errors in the trial how would you know if you don't get a trial transcript in this country you're lucky if you get a transcript of a summing up you do not get a transcript of what all the witnesses have said and what all yeah, the lawyers exactly. have argued that's problem number one problem number two and obviously this is an issue in bamba you problem number two is that you have to have access to the police file to see what evidence was hidden what uh, or, or inadvertently not disclosed you don't get that here you don't get access to the police file in the same way Problem number three, defence lawyer standards. In America, there's a very clear standard below which if a, if a lawyer falls, that is a ground for appeal. In this country, yes. we don't have standards like that. And finally, number four is that we are able to interview jurors in the United States and find out actually what went on in the jury room. And if there was anything improper, such as considering information that was not in evidence, yeah. we're going to find out about that. We don't find out about that here. Wow, that's that's such some really important differences there, isn't there? And if we could just adopt some of them in England, it would help considerably. So if we could move on and, and discuss Roger a little bit more, Emily, I believe that as well as the CCTV coverage, 
the appeal have actually uncovered that there was another person of interest that wasn't pursued? Yes, uh, the victim in the case was um, had a business partner who we think um, played a role in this case, either as a sort of puppet master, uh, making sure that uh, of the attack on the victim or possibly was even directly involved. This person uh, was not pursued by the police. And that is very troubling because he was uh, he was a business partner. He was one of the first people on the scene. Yeah. He has he has he has a history uh, that involves violence, and he stood to benefit from you know the the victim's kind of removal from the from the, from the business. Yeah. And this this other person uh, not only had all that kind of motive and opportunity, but he also had a connection with the police. So there was a policewoman who was involved in the investigation who was a close friend of this alternate suspects. It wow. turned out that her daughter had been working in uh, one of the alternate suspects restaurants. Her partner was doing work on the alternate suspects house. And there was even talk of uh, a house purchase that the, he would, he, that, that they might be buying the alternate suspects home. Nice. They were actually scheduled, literally the officer was scheduled to go out for dinner with the alternate suspect the night after the attempted murder of the victim. Oh so, my goodness. Yeah. So that those connections were things that we um, sought to ex expose in the process of working on the case uh, and brought to the, the attention of the Criminal Cases Review Commission. The Criminal Cases Review Commission concluded nothing to see here move on. Uh, we then attempted to judicially review the matter and we've also been attempting to get more information about these connections and whether that officer revealed them as she should have to her supervisors, but we have been turned down by the by the CCRC and by the courts uh, on making those inquiries. Really, well, that just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Absolutely ridiculous when this person is. You know, there were so many reasons why this person could be connected, and how this person's been sort of protected in a way mm -hmm. by his connections. But I believe there was also. Um, two white males that were seen running away from the area as well that appear to have weapons. Yeah, so that's an interesting aspect of the case and one that, you know, is really, really puzzling, which is we have two um, Asian men in custody uh, and two Asian men uh, convicted uh, in the case, but the completely, you know, independent, non-involved eyewitnesses who glimpsed from their windows people running away from the scene uh, describe uh, two uh, men they characterize as white. Now, I know, you know, there's, of course, we know about all the, uh, you know, uh, challenges of opportunity to view and all those sorts of things. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that that certainly gives me concern. But what's more, perhaps even more important with relation to Roger is Roger's old. Uh, and it, Roger's not very well. Um, and the kind of sprinting away from the scene of this violent beating uh, that is described by this witness is just doesn't match Roger. Um, no. you know, maybe, maybe as a younger man, he might have managed it. But... Um, uh, not certainly not anymore. And as well, the physical act of, of conducting an attack is physically draining, I would imagine. And so, you know, if Roger's not well anyway, that would have been one area that it wouldn't have been able to do very well if if that's what he's accused of. Yeah, and that's, I mean, and, and Bon, that's one of the things about representing yourself is that Roger was sitting there in a courtroom uh, faced with a judge, uh, prosecuting counsel and then counsel for his co-defendant and his co-defendant ultimately in the course of the trial admitted 
to having a very significant role in what happened to the victim. So nice. in a way, Roger's being attacked from various sides. He's not just being attacked from uh, prosecution side. His co-defendant, he obviously doesn't, Roger doesn't know just how, how much his co-defendant was involved in this. So it's almost like he's got two sets of lawyers bring, bringing out evidence that is damaging to him, but he himself, uh, is represent is forced to represent himself now roger uh grew up in um care homes and borstals he taught himself to read at the age of about 19 uh, 18 with a commando comics that he got in borstal because he's he's dyslexic so you know we're not talking about representing himself with a formal education he is educated he's self-educated he's a survivor he's someone who picks up and and tries to remember things uh as best he can but his dyslexia really affects his writing and also to a certain extent his reading so imagine trying to you know keep control of the evidence in a trial where you can't take notes in any meaningful way so these issues that you're picking up that you're saying that might have been important that this might have been important Roger really struggled to bring those forward I mean of course by the time you get to the court of appeal then they say oh this is all raised and raised already at trial and you can't raise it again but roger you know did his best but his best wasn't good enough to bring out the evidence that he wanted to do i mean for example um not only was the the issue of the cctv there was uh issues around uh cell site evidence uh placing him um, at various locations in the town. There are issues involving DNA testing and DNA profiles. There were issues around uh, patterns of phone calls. And these are all things that you or I would know immediately, right, well, he needs to get an expert to deal with these and present present them on behalf of the defence. But he wasn't even, you know, he didn't even... Um, no, realise that he could do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then, then this is the expense of doing that, isn't there? And... You know, he may not have had the capability to do that. He should have been given legal aid to do those things and he should have been able to have an independent ex- uh, expert e- examine them. And it, and that's particularly the case with the, the forensic evidence in the case, the physical evidence that's susceptible to DNA testing. So uh, there were a number of items um, that were, were tested. Now, the, the physical evidence that links Roger to the case is fingerprints found in Abu Ali's car. Roger says, yeah, absolutely. I was in the car. Uh, And also um, there was a a cap found at the scene, which is a, like a baseball cap and Roger's DNA is on that. But Roger has been very clear that he was wearing that cap uh, to nap. You know how when you you're on the on the road and the car yeah. headlights are kind of coming in front of you, he put the cap on to have a nap, a nap in the road. So he has explained why his DNA is on that cap. That cap was found on the crime scene. It actually wasn't found on the crime scene for a good hour or so. And those circumstances are really troubling because this was a crime scene that wasn't properly secured. It's a crime scene that the alternate suspect arrived at and was able to walk through and then suddenly this this cap is found uh so it's not found in the first round of evidence 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 collection the other thing about the dna uh evidence in this case uh is that the the alternate suspect can't be excluded as the donor of the DNA on that hat. So there's a number of profiles on there. So yes, yes it's Roger, but he's given an account of it. The owner of the, of the cap, obviously, uh, Abel, his DNA is there. There is also yes. DNA that you cannot exclude being from that alternate suspect. 
Um, mm -hmm. There's also a jacket uh, that has blood on the sleeve of it that was tested and came back showing it was the victim's blood. This jacket um, belongs to Abel, the co-defendant. Yeah. But there's also an incomplete profile there that doesn't come from the victim, doesn't come from Mr. Khan, and doesn't come from Abel Ali. So whose DNA is that? That jacket with um, DNA components on it that have been examined, also, the alternate suspect cannot be excluded as being the contributor of those. And it's one of those things with DNA testing, and I don't know if you've seen this with other cases that you've worked on, is that the police quite understandably have a limited budget. They do their testing. Once it proves the involvement of certain people as contributors, of course, DNA, of course, doesn't prove yeah. who, who did what when, but it does, it can prove that, so, that someone has touched an object. Once the DNA testing is done and included Abel Ali and included Roger Khan, they stopped. So that doesn't mean that all the DNA that's available on these clothing items has been tested. It just means that they tested as far as they needed to get to, to provide evidence that these two men were involved yeah. and then they stopped. They, they did enough could, to get the conviction. Yeah, and, and you know- Does the DNA, the alternative suspect, so the DNA on the cap, that isn't Rogers and isn't Mr. Allen's, does that match the DNA on the jacket that isn't theirs? It, so, it does. So the issue is that the, the, these component parts are quite small. So what we can say is that the alternate suspect is not excluded, but we can't say, you can't, you know, you have to be really careful with terms like match. Yeah, so what, so what, what's going on with the, this process of DNA testing, of course, the police have a limited budget. They can't pay these private labs forever and ever to test everything that's, you know, if you were testing my jacket right now, I mean, there'd be all sorts of different profiles on it, <laughs> um, including from my dog. Uh, but but, but um, you, you can't, but, but, so they have to stop at a certain point. But that's where post-conviction DNA testing is so vital. So they that's stopped, crazy. they convicted these people but one of them is still saying he didn't do it. And we think there's a lot of evidence to suggest uh, that that his trial was grotesquely unfair, but also we believe that he didn't actually do the crime. So at this point, surely we, as Appeal, as a charity, should be able to go back, gain and have that evidence, that physical evidence transferred to an independent laboratory and have testing, yeah. um, more testing to get more information out of, out of those physical exhibits that were Absolutely. made. Absolutely. And but, that that's what, but that's what they won't let us do. That is what we've, we, we've asked. refused. Yeah, so we asked the CCLC to do it. They said it wasn't worth it. And we asked to do it ourselves and we've been refused access to the evidence. So again, it's like the DNA testing in this case raises questions. How come the alternate suspect can't be excluded? How come there's someone else here who's not Roger and not the victim and not Abel? But also there's huge opportunities for further testing there that we're being denied the right to do absolutely uh, and the and the advances of dna in recent years is it's advanced so quickly that yes. it's a lot more easy to get a profile now yeah and we and we we we, we sought preliminary advice on this uh but we, we, but the people advising us asked for, you know to, to just could we please see the bench notes from the original testing we, they wouldn't even let us look at the notes so um so, you know, because that's the first step, all right? So in terms of what, what we've asked for and what we've been turned down on is we asked, can we look at the bench notes so we can see what else might be possible, get a sense of the sample sizes, all the rest of it. Yeah. And what they've turned us down, they won't even give us the bench notes. 
it's just it's that obstruction of justice at every turn, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just sickening. But let's say Mr. Mr. Khan's been refused by the CCRC, and that was in uh, 2016. Also, but what is it if you can't get this material? Mr. Khan's now served 10 years in prison. And if you can't get this material, what can appeal do next? How can you move Mr. Khan's case forward? It's, I'll make no bones about it. It's very challenging. Uh, but, you know, we continue to investigate. We've got a pro, lo, pro bono law firm working on the case, painstakingly going through the material and trying to see if there's anything we or the CCRC missed the first time around. One of the biggest obstacles uh, that Roger faced in bringing the case to the CCRC was the Court of Appeal judgments. So he had immediate, Roger did bring his case to the Court of Appeal, again, yes. as a litigant in person, again, writing his own grounds of appeal. And these, he feels, um, had ne have, have simply not been answered. And that is what is really frustrating for him because he wrote grounds of appeal these were rejected by the single judge, something I know, you know, a lot of people are familiar with um, yeah. that, that experience. Um, and th that uh, single judge clearly didn't... Emily, for people that don't know, would you like to explain that to people? Yeah, so, so in order to bring an appeal in this country, you first of all apply for leave to appeal, and that is heard by a single judge. And if the single judge tells you, turns you down, you can renew your application for leave to appeal and that's heard by three judges so roger was unrepresented put in his initial grounds of appeal and so that was immediately after the, the verdict wasn't it emily yes. it's not it's nothing to do with the ccrc for any don't want people to get confused yeah so this is this is earlier on after the trial and what roger put in his grounds was about the right to legal representation being denied, that there was a juror uh, who served on the um, jury who was uh, new, new people involved in the case, including people closely associated with the alternate suspect. Now she was ultimately discharged from the jury, but not before she'd had the opportunity to contaminate it. And again, you know, what contamination consists of, it's not that we think that jurors are out there, you know, deliberately violating their oaths, but yeah. you know, the sort of information that's floating around in the community that hasn't been tested, that shouldn't amount to evidence, you know, may get before a jury. He also put in his grounds of appeal about the DNA, that, that there was um, the mixed DNA profiles of blood on various items from the scene. And he also uh, put into his grounds of appeal the, uh, his, you know, the suspicions about the alternate suspect uh, and that he wasn't given the opportunity to uh, question witnesses. Yeah. Now, the, these grounds were literally handwritten by a man who really struggles to write. Um, yeah, I've seen his grounds of appeal and... You know, there's some work gone into them, haven't they? For yeah. how he structured them. I mean, he's really and, put a lot of thought into how he's done that. Yeah, and he's but but this was turned out now by the single judge. But if you then read the appeal judgment, uh, and so then he renewed his application to appeal, and he was turned down by the three judges. In that second judgment, in that in, in that and when in turning him down, those three judges are making reference to evidence in the case that's evidence against his co-defendant, Abel, but it's not evidence against Roger. It relates, they, they, they haven't mis, they, they've totally misapprehended the facts of the case by saying it's an overwhelming case against him. Yes, yeah. an overwhelming case against his co-defendant, but it's not an overwhelming case against Roger Carr. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the other thing that Roger really struggles with um, 
you know, accepting is, is part of British justice, is that he submitted his appeal grounds himself. He was not permitted to be at the appeal. Uh, eventually, at the very last minute on the renewed application, uh, a solicitor advocate came and argued some grounds for him. But the yes. solicitor advocate was arguing the grounds that he, the solicitor advocate, thought should be argued, not the grounds that Roger wanted argued. Now, of course, you can, you know, debate till the cows come home whose job it is to decide what the grounds are. So yeah. as the solicitor advocate had never been to see Roger, there was no meeting of the minds about what this appeal was actually about. You know, there is actually a relationship between client and advocate and they need to talk and they need to figure exactly. things out. So as a, so Roger was not represented on the, uh, in the single judge process and on the three judge process, he was represented at the last minute, uh, but his, the grounds of appeal that he wanted to raise were, were not addressed by the court and the court's judgment is full of factual errors. But the problem is, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, the CCRC then went ahead and said, you can't raise this, you can't raise that because it's already been dealt with in the appeal judgment. But the appeal judgment itself is wholly faulty as a document. But that is what is being used to hold, you know, progressing Roger's case back is that yeah. original appeal judgment, which is he is self-representing through most of it. His grounds of appeal weren't addressed by the court. The advocate who came in at the last minute um, didn't have a full understanding it's of the case. Absolutely shocking. And yet that's held against him. And and yet you can't take it forward again. You can't go back to the CCRC unless you've got new evidence. Exactly. So, and so that's and that's what and that's what we're looking for now. But the big uh, barrier that we face is um, law enforcement uh, not giving us access to the kind of evidence that we would like to test. Which is so. Can you? Is there anything before. further you can do about that, Emily? So we've done a judicial review on that and failed, uh, but we will continue to, to look for other routes. And Roger is um, now at HMP Oakwood uh, in the 10th year of his sentence. Uh, and that is a, you know, not a place someone his age with his um, uh, physical vulnerabilities need, needs to be during a pandemic. We're very worried about Ro Roger's health and his safety uh, when the pandemic first hit. Um, we were really concerned that he wasn't he wasn't going to make it. Somehow he survived so far, mainly by staying behind his door, mainly yeah. by leaving a very, very solitary life. And does um, he have a lot of exterior support besides appeal? I mean, yourself, Emily. Does Mr Khan have support from family members, friends? So Roger has a very loyal and loving partner who he had um, connected with um you know, not, not that long before he ended up being arrested for this. And what he and she just want is to be left to enjoy the rest of their lives together. You know, they are, you know, people who discovered one another later in life. They are, you know, ready to, you know, see out their years together. But yeah. so far, for the last 10 years of this relationship, um, it's been one in prison. And of course, his partner can't get up to meet him because of COVID. So he hasn't seen, he hasn't had any visits in two years. And, you know, these so-called purple visits that everyone, you know, the MOJ <laughs> are an adequate alternative to family visits. So this they is really a, not, a they? video. They really aren't. No, not at all. Not at all. Oh, it's, if anybody would like to offer their support to Mr Khan, is there a way that they can contact him, Emily? Yes. Um, so he can be written to, uh, and I can provide you with the details. So um, Roger... Roger you know, would love to hear from people. Absolutely makes Roger's day to hear from people on the outside world who have heard about his story and who are concerned about his case. There is nothing that your listeners could do that would 
mean more to Roger than to drop him a line, even if it's uh, a postcard. Yeah, that would be amazing because I know Roger really wanted this podcast. He, I know that he wrote to you and um, also his niece uh, contacted me uh, about doing this and he re was really adamant he wanted this to be done because he needs people to know, no matter what the courts say, he is an innocent man who's already suffered 10 years of an injustice. So could you possibly give the listeners the details of how to contact Mr. Carl Emily? So if you'd like to write to Roger, you can do so. Uh, his address is Roger Khan, A5724AY. That's his prison number. So you write Roger Khan, A5724AY. And he's at HMP Oakwood, Featherston, Wolverhampton, West Midlands, WV107QD. That's WV107QD. Oh, thank you so much, Emily. I mean, it's a lifeline to to people, they feel so isolated as innocent men and women in incarcerated into the system where, you know, sometimes they must feel, I don't know how they maintain their hope and belief at times when the system seems so stepped up against them. So to receive well wishes or even, you know, we've heard the podcast about you and we believe in you and we just wanted to let you know, just send a greetings card, just to our best wishes, I mean, it all helps and it's massively important for people in jail, isn't it? Absolutely, because if you think about it, doctor, I don't know if you're aware, Dr Adrian Grounds assessed, I think it was about 50 people who'd been wrongfully convicted. And yeah. he, he was looking to see, you know, what, what other groups they had the most in common with in terms of the trauma of wrongful conviction. And he yeah. discovered that the two groups that they had the most in common with were returned combat veterans and kidnap victims. So wow. you're thinking about what it's like to be wrongfully convicted. When you're wrongfully convicted, it's like you step into a parallel universe where nobody believes you. People are saying that things that you know to be true are simply not the case. And so for Roger to hear from people on the outside who have heard his story on this podcast and who get that this is not fair, that this is not British justice. Absolutely. You can't have a trial when someone represents themselves on charges this serious and ends up being convicted for a crime they absolutely maintain they didn't commit. And we have found, you know, so many different aspects of the evidence of this case point in that direction. When yeah. that happens, that's not British justice. That's not how the system's supposed to work. And but Roger feels so isolated and so alone because he thinks that no one believes him. So if, 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 if people are able, able to write, um, I'm, I, I'm absolutely certain that that would make his difference. Uh, it would make a massive difference to him, I'm absolutely sure. So, yeah, please, anybody, everybody, if, you, if you'd like to write to Roger, you've now got the details, and please just offer him your support and, and tell him that you've heard about his case because it is vitally important. Thank you very much, Emily, for all your hard work, not just on Roger's case, but on the hundreds of others that appeal work on every year. It's been an absolute pleasure to be able to meet you at long last. And I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much. And let's all just hope that we can find some fresh evidence to prove that Roger Khan is in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Absolutely. Please give us an update as and when that happens, and we will be more than glad to do another podcast with you to catch up on Roger's case and to see where it's standing at the moment. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Roger Khan's case, 
visit his website at www.justiceforroger.org.uk.